Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, the big news this week, Judd Trump hasn't won a tournament since we were last together. Now, there haven't been any tournaments. But even so, with the run he's been on, you know, you, you still thought, well, he may pick up some silverware somewhere. We don't know. He may have uh, entered the local handicap. But, of course, the International Championship... He's underway, and uh, well, after day one, it's pretty clear that uh, there's going to be a lot of heavy scoring. The, the pockets are playing generously. There's no getting away from that. This happened before, about five years ago, and Mark Allen won. Uh, he made 14 centuries in the tournament. The conditions were just very nice, um, but it, clearly balls have gone in. And, and so far this season, the, the pockets have been not generous. I mean, the, the British Open in Cheltenham, there was one pocket where you couldn't put anything into. Um, but out in uh, Tianjin... There's been a lot of heavy scoring and uh, it suggests that it's going to be uh, favouring maybe the top players this week. Um, There are these variances. I mean, the temperature is supposed to be the same, but uh, there are these variances and uh, the cloth playing beautifully. Now, it may may be a first day thing. You know, it may sort of sort itself out. But at the moment, from what we've seen, um, it's going to be heavy scoring. Uh, Very uh, good to see a big crowd in new new venue for snooker, new city. It's the fifth biggest city in China. Eric Liddell was born there. Um, now, if you don't know who Eric Liddell is, Char- Chariots of Fire will tell you all about him. Um, which maybe is uh, apt, really, because when Colin Welland... And we're already on to Colin Welland after about two minutes. He, wa- he wrote Chariots of Fire, the screenplay. And famously, when he won the Oscar, he got up on the stage and he shouted, The British are coming! And, of course, the British have come to Tianjin. It's, you know, he's quite likely to be won by one of them, you would think. Um, Neil Robertson hopes not. Now, Tianjin is twin with Melbourne. He's already all this information is pouring out. It's twin with Melbourne, so maybe that's an omen, because Neil, of course, trying to get in the champion of champions. It would seem odd for him not to be in that. Um, you know, he, he sort of belongs in it, doesn't he? But you've got to win a tournament, and all the players in that will be tournament winners. They've had a few problems. Um, draws out of the champion of champions. They've had a few problems with the uh, sort of fitting it all in, because obviously this international championship counts towards it, and also players potentially will be in the semis or the final may be playing on the Monday or the Tuesday, so it may have to be shifted around. There's no, it's nobody's fault. It's just the fact that you know there's no no time between the tournaments, and uh, 
you know, they're going to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who soon, but time machines don't actually exist. So you're gonna, they're not going to have to get the plane back. <laughs> it's going to take a bit of time. So that Monday, the people like Mark Selby, Ali Carter, Mark Allen, now all three of them, you could see being involved in the final weekend of the International Championship. So anyway, we'll monitor that uh, as the week goes on. But anyway, it's, it's already uh, auguring well for a good week out in China. It'll be a short edition, I think, this week because uh, it's a very busy time and uh, I can already feel myself getting a sore throat, which is not great when you've got four weeks of commentary coming up. I know that would be a tragedy for the world if somehow I was unable to actually commentate, but anyway, hopefully it will hold up. Uh, Nicholas McManus writes, he said, hopefully you can address this on the podcast. Ken Doherty has had to play Ronnie O'Sullivan in back-to-back China events. Qualified round one where he's hurt nothing, losing both matches. Does the WPBSA or WST assist players with travel costs who lose in held-over qualifiers halfway around the world? Probably not a big deal for someone like Ken Doherty, but there's other players who quite simply couldn't afford to travel all the way to China with no guarantees of earning any money. Well, Nicholas, someone did ask this uh, not so long ago. Yes, they do cover costs. I'm not entirely sure how much it is, but they, they pay... They pay money that uh, will cover the costs of, of flights and hotels. So uh, the players shouldn't be out of pocket. Um, as I said, I'm not absolutely sure how much it is. But if your match is held over, you do get those costs covered, uh, even though you don't earn any prize money. So that's that's basically the answer. Um, Eric, I'm going to say Egert, or it might be Egert. He says, long-time listener and reader, first-time emailer. So there's two subjects uh, Eric wants to talk about. Number one, broadcast. So I agree going around to different tables with special commentary is not possible, but it would be great if we could get some more advanced functionality on Discovery+. Plus. I'm talking about picture-in-picture mode. Sometimes players are like to watch on a lesser table or without commentary. It would be great if we could have a secondary match in the corner and switch to it if something exciting happens. I've seen that Discovery+, Plus now marks centuries and other events on the timeline in their player, and that's great. It would also make it easier to flip over to a secondary table in the mid-session interval. For what it's worth, many sports streamers have a quad box for watching. For example, four baseball games at the same time. Well, Eric, who knows? That may all happen in, in, in time. But all these sort of platforms are still evolving. And um, I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of ambitions to hopefully improve things. And, uh, you know, that, that may all happen. Uh, number two, getting into snooker journalism. Now, we had an email last week from uh, Rory who, who, who took asking about getting into snooker journalism. He said, uh, and this is Eric's reply, he said, I ran the German snooker blog website between 2005 and 2011 with help while being a student. I think there's a lot to say for having your own projects to do exactly what you want when starting out. While my profession took a turn away from covering snooker, let alone professionally, I still really enjoyed the opportunities it gave me. I attended a handful of pro-am snooker events with a press ticket in the late 2000s and learned a lot about equipment and what to pack and all the practicalities of travelling and working basically on the road. In general, especially the small events were very welcoming to trade tickets for, for a little coverage. I guess that's still the case and it's also a great opportunity to showcase new and unknown players. I still remember reporting on a young Luca Brassell back then. We all know how that lad's career has progressed. Anyway, thanks for the great content and the jokes. He's put that in, that in inverted commas. Keep up the good work and goodbye-bye. Well, thank you, Eric. Yes, well, that's good of you to write in about that. And we did have... Now, Phil Haig, I mentioned several times. He was almost obsessive last week. And Phil, very kindly, has got in contact to offer more advice uh, to uh, Rory, who wrote in. So this is what Phil says. Uh, He said, I did sports journalism... I did sports journalism at Leeds Trinity, which is an offshoot of Leeds University. I think they still have journalism and sports journalism courses there, and they're very good. They actually helped set up the work experience 
I did with Ivan from World Snooker Tour at the 2012 World Championships and then the UK Championships. Uh, and then he says uh, there's another lad uh, who's working for World Snooker, Ollie. He actually, again, got in that way. Um, so the he says the opportunities seem to be there. I also tell students to keep the net wide when looking for roles. People ask me a lot how to get into snooker journalism and there isn't really an answer. Get yourself in with a publication doing almost anything. Then you can suggest things and worm your way over to stuff you like. I did some serious worming to get to this point. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? And and we do rely a lot on enthusiasts, even to the extent where there have been times on the BBC Sports desk where snooker will get on if if the person producing or presenting is a snooker fan um and they you know can sort of follow their their passion through that so that's good advice from philly also there was a question last week about um snooker clubs near the crucible which phil has also answered uh he says there isn't really one near the crucible academies are really near i know anyone can go and play at victoria's if you book in which is quite cool this is the victoria academy this is quite cool as pros will be knocking about i play at a place called peaks the Hallamshire House is also great. It's just a pub, but the only one in the city with a full-size table plus excellent beer. Well, it sounds like a brilliant place. <laughs> what more do you want? A snooker table and beer. You know, we're simple people. So uh, thank you, Phil, for that. And uh, also thank you to uh, Chris from World Snooker, who, uh, who I did mention last week, just started there, and he is very kindly uh, going to email or passed on his details to Rory for more, for more uh, advice. <clears throat> we continue. Andrew in Dublin writes, As the saying goes, I'm a long-time listener and first-time emailer. I'm a huge fan of the show and was delighted to see your recent break didn't last too long. Well, the thing about that, Andrew, is it, I'm like Al Pacino in Godfather 3, you know, just just as I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Um, he says, I'm a keen snooker player and fan based in Dublin and travel over to Sheffield most years. This January will be my first trip to the Masters, which is very exciting. I generally find that the fan experience is pretty decent without being perfect. A major gripe for me is the merchandise side of things, which is absolutely tragic, let's be honest. T-shirts with phrases such as snooker players do it with one foot on the floor should be confined to a bygone tasteless era and replaced with modern trendy gear, such as is the case at tennis or golf tournaments. This really isn't rocket science, and I'm looking forward to seeing what this season brings, given your guest from World Stuka's comments on the matter earlier this year. The cost of the fan radio is increasing every year, and the fact that the one from the previous tournament doesn't work at the next one is also very frustrating and petty from WST, in my view. Rant over. In terms of... Well, we'll just deal with that first. I mean, the, the merchandise, I think it's been accepted widely, needs to improve, can improve... And people have had ideas about things they would like to buy and sort of keepsakes and, and, and mementos of their trip to the snooker. So, but this is a process. It doesn't just happen, you know, within a fortnight. I think you'll see that hopefully change over the, over the course of the season. Uh, he says, in terms of questions, just a few. <clears throat> he says, do you have any views on the snooker scene in Ireland? I think the event in Belfast is fantastic, but it's such a shame we don't have an event in the Republic to go with it. Many of the players still struggle. Sorry, I'll, I'll start that again. Many of the players still mention golfs when asked about their favourite venues. The amateur scene here is also struggling, in my view, with very little on the horizon, albeit Aaron Hill has had a dream start to the new season. I will answer that, uh, Andrew, shortly, because we've had another email about that. But uh, just to continue, why isn't there more technology in use at the tournaments in the style of Hawkeye? I notice they do use it more in Asia, and I think it adds a lot of value. I'd love to see more analysis of the various cue actions and timing 
a map of the cue ball showing exactly where the player struck the ball on a particular shot to help the audience understand how it reacts, etc. I think the possibilities are endless here, but I appreciate the cost is likely the major driver. Thanks for reading this very long email. If you've gotten this far, continue success in all your snooker endeavours. Thank you, Andrew. Um, yes, I mean, if you watch cricket, um, for example, you'll see where the, the, the bowler has pitched the ball in, in each delivery, and they'll have a sort of map of that, and it gives you a, a sort of sense of, you know, maybe their tactics, and, and, and it's quite interesting. Cricket's very good at all that stuff, you know, where the where the ball's been hit around the, around the ground, you know, and all that. It, it's very, very good. Snooker does lag behind a little bit, but, you know, this technology, the technology exists, but it will cost money. We don't see the Hawkeye now in, in the UK. We see it in China. Um, but, it, yes, it... it all of that can certainly add to understanding of, um, you know, uh, like you say, the, the sort of technicalities. Um, to be fair, the BBC have tried a few of these things. Um, we've seen, and we've seen it in other coverage as well. Um, the problem is it can get overcomplicated. Like, do we need to know how many balls have been potted into a particular pocket? Because what what relevance does that really have? You know, because it's just how the, the game's sort of gone, I suppose. But, um Anyway, I think there can be more of all that stuff that you've mentioned, but equally it can be overdone if you're not careful. So it's, it's, I suppose it's finding a balance. Uh, and I'm sure that as we sort of go forward, uh, you know, that, that balance will be found. Now, you mentioned Ireland, and Brendan Cowley's written, Brendan says, I'm a 14-year-old snooker fan from Ireland. I went to see live snooker for the first time at the Northern Ireland Open. I went to the first day, and it was amazing. It was great to see so many great players in action, and the venue was excellent and perfect for the event. I also met Jack Lasowski, which, top, which topped off a brilliant experience. I absolutely love the game, so to see the best players play in person was an experience I'll never forget. Well, that's brilliant to hear that, by the way, Brendan, and uh, I'm glad you had a good day out, and uh, no doubt we'll be going back next year. He says, uh, my question is, do you think there'll be a tournament in the Republic of Ireland any time soon, as the game is still popular here? Thanks for the excellent podcast and your brilliant commentary. Well, thank you, and um, just following up the, the previous email as well. I mean, Sean Murphy... I mentioned, you know, he'd like to see a tournament in the Republic. I think everybody would because it is a hotbed, definitely. Um, whether the amateur game has, has, has sort of struggled recently, as was suggested, it's still a place where a lot of people like snooker. We used to have the Irish Masters, which was traditionally a, a pre-World Championship invitation event, 12-player event. It became a ranking event, and it became a bit unwieldy, I think, because of that. Um, there's definitely room for a tournament in Ireland, but it falls back on the... On the um, on the same old sort of issues, really, which is you need a broadcaster, you need a venue, you need a sponsor, and you need a quite a considerable amount of money to set the whole thing up. So that's that's the sticking point, isn't it? Um, in terms of uh, Goffs, I have to say, and people won't, maybe won't like this, but Goffs is not considered to be an appropriate venue in the modern age for a snooker tournament. Backstage, there's virtually no room... Um, there was in the days of the Irish Masters. There were no room for practice tables. Even they were at the hotel. Um, very limited space for anything else. The actual arena is not really ideal for television. It's ideal for the players. The players always say how great Goffs was, and it was as a playing arena because because it's a, a show ring. It's not a sort of sporting venue as such. It's a show ring, um, and it had that sort of dramatic crucible like in the round feeling. So for the players, it was great. TV. It's not great. I know. I know. Broadcasters have looked at it, and they've come back and said, "No, this is not um, really a venue for us." And I think, personally, I think it, it should be 
left to one side and we should look for a modern venue now. If we're going to go to the Republic of Ireland, let's find a venue in Dublin that's central um, rather than always harking back to days gone by. Let's leave that as it was. And if we're going to go there, and obviously that depends on all the things I've already mentioned, let's find a new venue. And it'd be great if we could have a tournament there, but you know, the, it's not as simple as just sort of deciding and then and then going there. It, money is always going to be the driving force in all of these things. Obviously, if an Irish broadcaster or indeed any broadcaster wanted to go there, then that would be more likely to happen. Um, but uh, I'm glad anyway you enjoyed your your experience in Belfast, and uh, you know that was uh, a tournament will sort of recede into the memory as the snooker ramps up the next few weeks. But it was a very successful week certainly audience wise <clears throat> Matthew McConnell I thought about writing this email for inclusion in your podcast on the 30th of October but I assumed other emailers would have mentioned it I'm sure you've seen it but the long awaited O'Sullivan documentary about his 7th world title win amongst other things is going to be on Amazon Prime on the 23rd of November the trailer looks fantastic in my opinion and I see great potential for this to bring some new and old fans to the sport the combined star power of Ronnie and David Beckham, with whom he's doing a Q&A to promote the documentary, gives Snooker a rare opportunity to force its way into the celebrity mainstream and be visible to a global audience outside the April-May surge caused by the World Championship. I really hope the Snooker world rose in behind this and senses the opportunities to which this documentary could lead. I believe it is in every stakeholder's interest to promote this to the fullest and get as many eyeballs as possible watching the documentary. As a Ronnie fan, I can't wait for this, but snooker fans the world over will hopefully see the value of this to the sport and support it, regardless of their opinions on the rocket. Well, yes, this is long-awaited, Matthew. You're quite right. Um, and it's going to be, as you said, Amazon Prime. It will be in selected cinemas that, that week as well. But Amazon Prime, 23rd of November. It's been made by David Beckham's production company. I'm sure it'll be very high quality. You know, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Um, and well put together. Um, and I'm looking forward to watching it, but I'll, I'll, I can't sort of endorse something I haven't seen. You know, I'll, I will give my views on it when I've seen it. I can't give my views on it before then because I haven't seen it. So I'm looking forward to seeing it and I'll give my comments on it when I have seen it. But until I've seen it, there's not a lot else I can say really other than to agree with you that it is an opportunity, certainly with Beckham promoting it, you know, on social media with his millions of fans. It's a big opportunity. Yes, for snooker, as you say, to get into the mainstream. Um, and, you know, it, it can't not be interesting, I guess, because Ronnie, Ronnie's life and career has been incredibly interesting. So, yeah, it, I'm sure it's going to be very, very uh, fascinating and uh, looking forward to watching it. But in terms of a review, I can't really do that until I've actually watched it. Um, and, uh, well, we don't have long to wait, do we? It's just a couple of weeks. Um, it will be out. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, we've spoken before about... Uh, how this sort of genre, this behind-the-scenes genre, um, can, can be very helpful to sports. One thing I'll say, it's got nothing to do with Ronnie, uh, or indeed this documentary, but documentaries in general now. I was watching last week, okay, there was a documentary about Millie Vanilli. Now, <laughs> this kind of ages me a little bit, but I was kind of fascinated in that story, and there's a very interesting documentary about Millie Vanilli, okay? But this typified documentaries now. The first two minutes of every documentary you see now is effectively a trailer for the documentary. They tell you everything you're going to see in the next hour and a half. And the reason, of course, is because there's so many platforms now, they're really worried you're going to turn off. <laughs> so they just give away everything they're going to tell you. You could actually just watch the two minutes, really, and that's it. That's, <laughs> that's the story. And um, that seems to be the way documentaries are made now. We just tell you everything we want to tell you so that you sort of 
hopefully you'll keep watching. But anyway, I did keep watching. It was quite interesting. Um, it turned out, that, and sadly one of them passed away. We're not here to talk about Billy Vanilli, but sadly one of them passed away. But um, the other the other one is still with us. Can sing. That's the whole point about it. That, that, if you don't know the story, they were a very successful sort of duo. Came along, uh, you know, with a big hit, and it turned out they they didn't sing on their records. They just lip synced, and it was a big scandal. But and, and the reason given was that oh well they can't sing they just look good but it turned out that the one who's still with us can sing and he's got a career now as a recording artist so good luck to him. Um, oh yeah, it's snooker we're talking about isn't it? Sorry, I knew there was a reason we were gathered together. Anyway, Phil Spivey, this is the last email this week. So it's the last one we've had. That's why. <laughs> just, uh, if, but if you ever think, by the way, oh we won't read mine out, believe me, we'll take anything. <laughs> just send send them in and we'll read them out. Phil Spivey, loving the podcast and glad your recent break was not too long. I found your comments on the Macau 5 very interesting and balanced. Don't want to add much to it, but it's made me wonder if promoters in the Far East are willing to pay huge sums to have top players and events or exhibitions, would this not be an opportunity for World Snooker Tour to work with these people and put on events they could sanction? Then everybody wins. Well, we'll, st- we'll start with that. There's other points you're about to make, but um, yeah, I mean... Look, World Snooker Tour have got a very clear plan about how they put on events and structure their calendar. Um, I'm not sure some of these promoters who put on exhibitions really want to run full tournaments. Um, so it, I'm sure World Snooker would like to work with anybody, but you, you have to establish a relationship. And also there are issues around, OK, we need the money up front. We need to make sure these people are actually going to underwrite these events because, you know, you look what happened in Turkey. Obviously that tournament fell by the wayside. Um, here's the other thing, though, OK? And, yeah, you're talking about getting events on, fine. But exhibitions is something we've never really discussed on this podcast. Exhibitions, I'm not sure, are any good, really, are they? Okay, it's a night out and you get to see someone, you know, a star and you maybe get to meet them, get the, get your picture with them. But quite often you'll hear people coming back from an exhibition saying, oh, it was great, you know, so-and-so made three centuries in a row. Well, yeah, he, of course he did because he's a really good player, but go and do it in a tournament because that's what's interesting, doing it under pressure with all, with all everything on the line. There's no jeopardy in an exhibition. It's just someone who's, you know, getting paid to go out and entertain. Good luck to them. If people enjoy it, good luck to them as well. But... The really interesting thing to me is how do people who are brilliant at snooker actually do it when the pressure's on, or can they not do it when the pressure's on? That's what's interesting. Who you know who is going to win the next tournament? Who's going to survive the the anxiety of it all? Um, exhibitions are just sort of well, they serve a purpose clearly, and, and people obviously enjoy them. But I'm more interested in tournaments personally. Uh, we did speak once about Eddie Charlton doing the, the billiards exhibition with Clive. And, uh, I mean, there's a night out. You know, there was no Netflix in those days. And uh, Clive tells the story. I'll tell it again. Eddie was doing these these sort of trick shots, as it were, towards the end. And they were quite convoluted. They took quite a long time, unusually for Eddie, to, to complete. And, anyway, he was doing them and doing them. And the, the, the interest was, was waning a little bit in the audience, such as it was. And he, he sort of did another one, and then the promoter just shouted across the room, "Is that it? Is that it, Eddie? <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> I.e., please stop." Um, now exhibitions have moved on a bit since then, but uh, yeah, I, you know, if someone said to me, "There's an exhibition up the road, and doesn't matter who it would be, Ronnie O'Sullivan against Jimmy White, you know, the great entertainers, or there's a ranking tournament 
down that road, I would go down to the ranking tournament, whoever it was, because it's just more interesting. It's not to say exhibitions don't have their place, but tournaments is, is where it's at. Uh, Phil has got another issue here. He says it's been raised again about whether Judd Trump can be considered an all-time great. Certainly another world title or two would confirm this status, but I think he's possibly there already. 26 ranking titles, regardless of them being triple crown or not, is a remarkable achievement. They're all so difficult to win. Although we'll probably never surpass Ronnie in the GOAT debate, I do think he's the most likely to overtake two of O'Sullivan's records, the number of ranking titles and century breaks. Obviously, it's hard to say while Ronnie is still playing, but I can see it happening. By my reckoning, or at least Wikipedia's, it took Ronnie until the age of 38 to win his 26th title. Judd is only 34. Also, Judd has over 940 centuries and he's less than 300 behind Ronnie, despite the 13-year head start Ronnie had. At, this, at his rate of centuries per season so far, he'll have made over 600 uh, 1,600 by the time he's O'Sullivan's age. Of course, on both counts, it's impossible to state this will happen, but if he matches either or both of those records, surely he'll be an all-time great, even if he remained on only one world title. Only in, in inverted commas. <coughs> well, thank you, Phil. And, um, I mean, well, it all comes down to semantics, really. It comes down to your personal view of what constitutes an all-time great, and people have their own opinions. Um, but, I mean, if you look at the all-time list of ranking event winners, he's number five <laughs> on that list, ahead of two people who are surely all-time greats, Mark Williams and Mark Selby. So he's ahead of them on ranking titles. Um, if, by the end of his career, he hasn't won a second world title, can he stand alongside them, even if he's won maybe 20 more ranking titles? That's another argument. I think most people agree that multiple world championships is a sort of qualifier to be in the absolute pantheon. But there are different sort of pantheons. Uh, there's different levels. He's not on the level of O'Sullivan or Hendry yet, clearly. But that doesn't mean he's not an all-time great. I think he is, absolutely. Absolutely. He's done things a lot of those other players haven't done. He's won three ranking titles in a row. He's won more prize money than anyone else in a single season, over a million pounds. He won six ranking titles in a season, which is a record. He's one of only two players to make over 100 centuries in a season. A lot of these other players have done lots of other different things that he hasn't done, but he's also done things that they haven't. And he's continuing to put trophies in his cabinet. He's also... The problem is, you see, the, the different eras have been judged in different ways. In the 1980s, when Steve Davis was king, the Masters was not one of the titles that marked you out as a great. It was all about ranking tournaments, because they were new, and Steve Davis himself was quoted as saying, in 1987, I don't try as hard in the Masters as the other tournaments because there's no ranking points, it's just about money. Now, that has changed, clearly. The Masters now is a major, but Judd Trump won it last season. Anyway, so, <laughs> you know, he still is winning those tournaments. He's won all... I mean, what tournaments hasn't he won that he should have won? I suppose the Tour Championship, that's a new event. But you look at all the other events that he should have won, he's won them. So the question is, how many more times can he win them? He's got opportunities in the future to climb that pantheon, if you like, or go deeper into it, if that's even a thing. But yeah, I think he is an all-time great, um, just from what he's already achieved. I think what he's achieved is, is phenomenal. And, and, and let's put it this way, if he wins 10 ranking tournaments this season, right, which is not impossible, he's unlikely, obviously, but let's say he wins 10 ranking events this season, but not the World Championship. How can anyone say that's not a great achievement? Even if he bombs out at the Crucible in round one, it's, you know the World Championship obviously casts a long shadow over the sport because it's such a, uh, you know, a historic and treasured event. 
But it's not the only event. And let's put it the other way. Say Judd Trump won five world championships, but only ten other ranking events. Does that mean he's more of an all-time great than winning 30 ranking events and one world championship? How do, how do the two measure up? Do the scales go up because you win more world championships, but you're not winning the other tournaments? So, to me, I've, I've said before, and I stand by it, the absolute sort of upper pantheon, if you like, you have to be a multi-world champion, and you have to have won a good number of other tournaments. So, players like Ronnie O'Sullivan, Stephen Hendry, John Higgins, Steve Davis, Mark Williams, Mark Selby, they've all done that already. They've all won, you know, at least three world championships, and they've all won at least 20-odd ranking tournaments. So, they are all, for me, in that upper pantheon. Judd Trump obviously hasn't yet been a multi-world champion but that doesn't mean he's not an all-time great um, in my opinion but that's all it is it's my opinion and other people will feel differently and they're quite entitled to uh, he's doing all right i think it's fair <laughs> it's fair to say i mean whether he cares about this this stuff i think the problem is certainly what those players i think we can all agree what those players hendry and davis and and, and, and even ronnie early on in his career didn't have was the pressure of social media and people telling them they're not doing well enough and I have to say, Twitter is now over, basically, for me. I think oh, X, as it's called, it's not it's not improved under our dear friend Elon Musk. Um, people forget now the early days of Twitter. It was funny, you know. You had Stephen Fry on there. You had people on there being amusing, and people still try that now, but they tend to get shot down. I mean, I, I was interested to hear Sean Murphy discuss this on his podcast with Phil Seymour, the One Four Seven podcast, and he was talking about um, he'd lost early, I think, in the English Open. And it allowed him to go to America to attend a funeral of, I think, a member of his family, I believe. Um, and he was saying, well, you know, sort of almost serendipity that, you know, obviously I wanted to do well in the tournament, but it's allowed me to go and to the funeral. And he got dogs abused for that. And you think, what's wrong with people? <laughs> what's wrong with people? He's talking about something very personal to him. And people were accusing him of losing on purpose and all sorts of horrible things. And this week, I, I quite often... Just and it is genuinely to just give people information on, on Twitter. Would we'll put the order of play up with the different tables, what table numbers they are, and so on. I put that up for day one of the international championship. I would say about a third of the comments I got back were abusive, <laughs> and all I was doing was putting information. There were people saying, "Oh, you know," they sh I mean, more than one person said there shouldn't be tournaments in China. It's too early for people in the UK and Europe to get up and watch. I mean, talk about you know the height of exceptionalism. <laughs> There were people saying, oh, well, my favourite player's not on the TV. I said, you know, it's terrible. This is, I, you know, I can't see them on table seven. There were people, <laughs> I sort of cropped out, there's a column for referees which wasn't filled in, so I just cropped it out because it looked a bit odd, it was empty. People were accusing me of censorship. Oh, you won't, you're not allowed, they won't allow you to tell us who the referees are. Too many people live through a screen and their whole perception of the world is affected by it. And it's just no good anymore, I'm afraid. It used to be fun, it isn't anymore. Um, and I can't see how it's going to change. So it's a shame, but there we are. Um, you know, if, if you get abuse for putting up an order of play, then the world is kind of is kind of crazy. Um, I'm not sure how we got onto that, but anyway, that's my <laughs> my soapbox moment for this week. Uh, so anyway, the international championship continues, and uh, we go to the champion of champions next week. Hopefully, with the with the people on on Monday being able to play, UK championship qualifiers. Um, and the UK Championship itself. So it's a very exciting month of snooker. And, uh, yeah, Judd Trump has already extended his run to 21 matches in a row. 
and uh, well, we'll see how far he gets uh, in terms of towards the record. The record is 38, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Now, Ronnie himself played that down, I think, with some sort of justification, really, because that was the first 38 matches he played as a professional, and they were against, in the main, players who, you know, in that era weren't great because it was people who, like him, had paid their money to turn pro. There was no sort of qualifying criteria. You just turned up. And obviously he's still turning up because he's brilliant. Uh, a lot of the others, obviously, or all of them actually, have fallen by the wayside. Um, Stephen Hendry won 36 in a row. That was more um, on a parallel with what Trump's doing because it was, you know, in tournament play when he was a top player, he won the World Championship. And uh, he was winning matches in, you know, in tournaments like Trump is. So uh, he's still quite a way off that, but, uh, you, well, we'll see. We'll see how far he gets. But in the meantime... Um, that's it for this week quite a short episode and uh, well we'll return hopefully next week and uh, in the meantime you can email us snookerscenepodcast at mail.com that's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com and uh, we're members of the Sports Social Network Um, and uh, it's worth also there are other podcasts of course I know Talking Snooker this week will be interviewing Stan Moody which I'm sure will be very interesting because young Stan has uh, broken through um this season, of course, turning pro and got to the last 16 in the Northern Ireland Open. Um, I also, tip my hat to uh, Shabnam Eunice Jewell, who does uh, Framed, the uh, the BBC podcast every Monday, which is always an interesting interview. I've already mentioned Phil and Sean, and of course, World Snooker Tour have got their podcast as well. They had Mike Dean, the football referee, on last week. It was quite interesting. All the sort of aggro with VAR in football, you know, we don't have this. Uh, we, we sort of have calls for technology in this podcast and other people call for it, but it can lead to trouble. Too much technology can lead to trouble. There's, there maybe is something to be said for the old, for, to me, to you, thumb movements, replace it, the balls. It's, there's something honest about it that doesn't rely on machines. Um, anyway, the other podcasts you can listen to, there are snooker podcasts in other languages as well. So I just wanted to um, acknowledge the, the sort of podcast community, which is growing all the time. I'm sure there'll be more in the future. Uh, That's it. So thanks for listening. And as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over a 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.